Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. My guest today is Amrita Roy, a fellow Substack author, macro enthusiast, and like-minded pragmatist. Today, we had a great conversation about the outlook for the US economy. Starting with the big picture, Amrita tells us how the monetary and fiscal policies of the last 10 years have led us to the situation we are in today. We then dive into how things could play out in terms of inflation, bonds, and what this means for equities. From the macro to the micro, we covered employment, the health of the US consumer, recent earnings, and also emerging trends in tech and AI. To sum up, we discussed different outlooks for 2024 and how investors should position for the coming year. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Amrita, and I'm sure you will too. If you haven't already, do yourself a big favor and go follow her on Substack, where she writes under the handle The Pragmatic Optimist. In just a few months, she's amassed a great audience and was even recently featured on Substack Reads. So go ahead and follow Amrita, like, share, and follow The Pragmatic Investor, and as always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome to the show, Amrita Roy. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course, thanks for having me. Very excellent. So, first question I have, and you know, this has been on my mind for a while because you know I'm the pragmatic investor, you're the pragmatic <laughs> optimist. Where did that name come from? Where did that inspiration come from? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, we got to know each other for the first time through Substack, obviously. And when I saw your um, title of the Substack was um, pragmatic investor, I was actually laughing. Um, <laughs> so uh, so much in common. Um, pragmatic optimist. Uh, name came about because um, I am an optimist. I believe in the technological good and the forces that are shaping uh, the narratives for this decade and longer. Uh, it has always done so. Um, however, the pragmatic part comes in because I don't necessarily believe in just going in on the FOMO of chasing um, gains in bubbles, let's say, and that has been particularly the case for much of the past decade where we have lived in artificially low interest rates, negative yield, negative real yielding government debt. And that has caused a lot of bubbles, especially in names, in, in growth names. And while over the last maybe year or so, some of the, uh, some of the bubbles have bursted, uh, it sort of like made me realize that, yes, I am an optimist. I look at the overall good of technology. I'm very excited by it. I think it's net positive, but at the same time, when it comes to investing, it is always important to have the macro overview or the macro overlay in perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, macro, especially, you know, like you say, in, in today's environment, definitely moves things a lot more. And you know, I think kind of a similar outlook to where I started. I, you know, I had a background kind of in Austrian economics. Uh, so, you know, that's always been like from the background of, you know, everything's kind of a very doomsday. But to me, the pragmatism comes in as well as saying, well, you know, to an extent, yes, but also... Like you say, you know, uh, we have had some very good, um, you know, some very good performance in growth stocks. And, you know, even though Peter Schiff has been talking about it for 20 years, you know, we haven't quite had that collapse of the dollar yet, you know. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some kind of merging, right, of reality and kind of, you know, economic theory. Because so far, the doomsday scenario hasn't quite played out. I don't know, what is your kind of big level overview of, of the U.S., let's say, where, where it comes from and where it's arrived right now, where where we're at, what's kind of your big picture analysis there? Uh, sure. So I probably start um, by saying that 
we probably entered a brand new era um, of uh, excessive Fed accommodation and artificially low interest rates starting after the 2008 financial crisis. Like that basically ushered in this new era where probably the long-term stability um, of the U.S. dollar ultimately came into question where it is at now. So governments can borrow um, and it can issue debt as much as it wants. Like look at look at Japan, for example. But that system only works if inflation and interest rates are kept anchored. And that was primarily the case after 2008 financial crisis because the QE that the Fed did, quantitative easing that the Fed did, which it does pr primarily by printing reserves, those reserves stay in the monetary system. They don't necessarily go out to create real economy money. Um, mm -hmm. And um, sure, QE creates asset price inflation, but it does not create real economic inflation as we are seeing today. Mm -hmm. um, now, from 2008 till 2020, I mean, of course, there were markets ups and downs. Interest rates were super low. It, the Fed tried to increase the debt up, up until some point. They also tried to reduce their balance sheet until a re uh, repo crisis happened in 2019. Come to 2020, pandemic happens. And for the first time, this is, I think, the Fed and the um, government that joined forces like never before to save the U.S. economy out of a possibly very severe uh, depression that could have taken place. And in a way, they succeeded. Um, but the cost came at a very high rate of inflation. Obviously, $2.2 trillion CARES Act, um, which was the stimulus package, was financed through QE by the Fed. This package sent direct payments to Americans and, un and unemployment extension. And people's incomes went up. This raised incomes went into spending. It went into paying down debts. It went into paying uh, into buying uh, financial assets. And uh, soon after, we know when consumer spending is going up at a rate which is higher than the rate of inflation, and we are seeing that the job market is not necessarily uh, at a, I mean, it, it, I wouldn't call it like at full capacity, but near capacity, we would we would definitely uh, see a spike in inflation. And that is what we saw in um, early part of uh, 2021, when we saw that, um, I believe, uh, let me pull up my notes here. Yeah, we saw that core inflation had risen 4.5% and real GDP had risen 4.7%, which meant that nominal GDP was growing at 8%. Now, in an economy where 70% is consumer spending and the nominal GDP is 8%, there is no way on earth that your core inflation for your spending is going to be kept at 2.2% long term. There is no way. And pretty much the Fed was calling it transitory for the longest time um, until it was too late um, and it rushed to the battle scene to quell inflation. And um, since then, obviously, we know that rates have been hiked 11 times. It stands at 5.25% to 5.5. Uh, the Fed has been doing one of the most aggressive QT quantitative tightening, whereby it does the exact opposite of QE. It takes away reserves from the system and thus it drains the system out of liquidity. Um, and it has been doing that at a pace of $100 billion, if I'm correct. The Fed's asset size was at, I think, $8.5 trillion at the height of pandemic, and now it's at 7.58, so it has reduced quite a bit. Um, and yeah, in the process, um, 
we have we have managed to bring down inflation quite a bit i would say consumer spending though still remains robust but pro probably because of services inflation but there are parts of the economy i would say that are now showing early signs of fatigue when i look at uh, measures of production when i look at measures of employment when i look at measures of savings and debt i think it's sort of at the tipping point right now whereby we should see um a slowdown uh, in re in in real terms because i think the term slowdown has been said for a long time yet we have not seen such a slowdown and one of the biggest reason was the excess uh, savings that had accumulated during the pandemic of 2.1 trillion dollars which is now almost over um there is probably at most 190 billion dollars left uh in excess savings maybe not and it obviously has hurt the middle to lower income way more than it has hurt the higher um and upper middle class to be very honest in fact i don't even know they're hurt as much looking at the data but yeah the, when i look at the overall picture of how fast savings have been drawn out when i look at how fast debt interest payments as a percentage of personal disposable income is going up i can say with a certain degree of confidence that yes we are we are heading for a for a slowdown and that is what the bond market is predicting the bond market has inverted it has been what more than a year and a half um we have also seen a, you know mini bank banking crisis the svp collapse earlier in the year which obviously has been tamed by fed's easing programs uh but yeah um i think where we are is that inflation remains higher than expected it has come down consumer spending is showing signs of slowdown um though still remains robust um whereas the other parts of the economy the production side the employment side the savings debt side is, is seeing slowdown from the aggressive tightening that has happened in so far um in the us and i can say this from a consumer standpoint of course um i i i can go into details about how uh the whole uh, aggressive qt is probably fueling another layer of inflation on the government debt side but i'll probably keep that for a later part of the conversation if you bring it up absolutely well definitely a lot to unpack there and obviously you're very uh, in touch with everything that's going on and very knowledgeable i'm curious to know what your background is also uh, so could you please tell us a little bit about that read on your substack that you uh, speak seven languages uh yeah i do i do speak seven languages uh and i have learned them all like i haven't learned any recently um i am originally from india so i speak hindi and bengali which are my native languages uh i'm from india so obviously i speak english i grew up um for a good part of my childhood and into teenhood high school and whatnot um in paris so i speak french um went to came to united states for college um and then went to russia to study abroad to speak russian and then also worked in turkey for 3 years um and as a result i speak turkish so uh yeah so most of my language learning probably happened um sort of in the, my early 20s phase and after that uh there has been no new languages that have been learned i think i, uh, I think it's pretty much impossible to learn languages after after that it gets gets pretty hard yeah 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 i, I do enjoy uh learning though but though i haven't had a real experience um i probably need to move to a different country where they speak a different language but for now nothing like that is on the horizon and so what is your background in markets then sure um actually my background in markets is not very uh like i don't come from a traditional background in uh, financial economics um 
I have worked for a good chunk of my career in Silicon Valley in tech, in fintech companies specifically. Um, and in 2020, I decided to uh, sort of uh, change my career path, try something else. Um, I have always been very curious and passively interested in the whole macroeconomics investing piece. I read, I, I used to read blogs of Ray Dalio and whatnot, and it, and it has always made me very curious. And it sort of wanted me to like sort of go deep down into the space. So in 2020, I uh, I actually left the United States, came to Canada. Vancouver, where I live now, and I started a fund uh, with it's it's a family and friends fund, and the goal of the fund was to invest in uh, in 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 companies that sort of uh, stand at the core of the narratives of the secular forces um, that stand to shape uh, the next five years or ten years with a um, with a, with a macro overlay, and that's what I have been doing over maybe like two two and a half years, and I decided to start my Substack about two months ago to share my learnings on that journey. And also I am just deeply passionate about connecting the dots in macroeconomics, in investing, and sort of the evolving nature of technology trends, cultural trends, and how that shapes uh, societies at large. And uh, I connect the dots using data and frameworks to form the big picture, identify companies, and just improve uh, the overall financial well-being, um, and that is the goal of the newsletter, and that's what I have been doing over the last two months. Awesome, yeah, you can really tell in your writing that that passion really coming through, and uh, I've been enjoying your your latest pieces. Now, I want to get back into the macro. Um, you know, we covered a lot before. I want to break it down a little bit, uh, maybe starting a little bit uh, talking about bonds and kind of the outlook there, especially since I'm sure uh, you. You're familiar with the fact that you now yesterday we had that uh, treasury auction, which uh, normally is kind of a non-event. This time it's um, it's made a lot of headlines, basically with that idea that the um, that the bid uh, that the um, the auction was kind of underbid, right? Sending the uh, sending the rates a little bit high. What is kind of your your look? Because the way I see it, we have a bit of a, a battle right going on right now with the treasury kind of you know not wanting to pump the brakes at all on on, spe on spending. Well, you know, simultaneously, actually, we had Jerome Powell come out yesterday and, you know, obviously unrelenting in his, in his uh, hawkish tone saying that, you know, the job isn't done yet. So um, what are your, what are your outlook, uh, what's your outlook for, for bonds? Sure. Um, yeah, you have you've precisely said it, that the Treasury is not going to slow its pace and it won't. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, not this FOMC meeting that happened, I think, last week. Um, but the one before that, where they had set out the FOMC projections, um, that the bond market completely freaked out and sent the rates, the 10-year, up to close to 5%, and real yields went up to 2.5%. And there was a terrific amount of volatility not seen in in in, in risk-free like treasury U.S. Treasury market ever really, um, and. Um, I mean, the, the the reason why that happened was because the bond market had clearly not priced in the the rates that, I mean, they, they were pricing in rate cuts, whereas Fed, I mean, Powell came on on, on, on te the television and was like, no, we are going to keep rates higher for longer. And these are the new dates mm -hmm. where rates are not going down anytime soon. And the reason why is because real GDP is now expected to be stronger. Unemployment is expected to, or employment is expected to be stronger. And inflation is not necessarily going up as per the Fed's projections. So as a result, the bond market had a meltdown. 
Um, obviously, the Fed currently is not accommodating. The Fed is not buying. The Fed is, in fact, selling. So it's a net seller. It is adding reserve. Sorry, taking reserves from the system. It's draining liquidity. So the private sector is has to absorb all the bonds. Also, central banks around the world are not necessarily buying the quantity that it used to buy in U.S. Treasuries. And part of the reason could be also that the outlook for general inflation is just a little bit uncertain at this point. Long-term inflation. Uh, so given the state, the state that the Fed is not accommodating, the private sector with less liquidity has to accommodate all these, not ac accommodate, but buy, absorb all these bonds that the Fed is issuing. There was just a supply-demand um, mismatch, I would say, whereby um, the auction happened and um, the private sector just wouldn't buy until rates, uh, the yields sort of reached a point that matched their risk premia. So essentially what we saw was a spike in risk premia. The break-even inflation uh, has sort of remained anchored. It is just the risk premia that is going up uh, in the 10-year, primarily driven by the fact that there are so many more uncertainties regarding the long-term path of inflation that is coming about. Um, in terms of like, I mean, I mean, since then, obviously, um, I think some of the things that had like calmed the bond markets just slightly would be like a weaker unemployment report. So obviously like right. long-term, um, like if, if economic indi indicators in general are coming in weaker than expected or sort of softer, we are going to see the long end come down a bit. Um, so unemployment was one. One more thing was that I believe the Treasury had issued uh, a statement saying that they actually borrowed or are projected to borrow slightly less uh, in this last quarter. And they're more likely, and, and they have stated that the, that the duration is not, not going to be on the longer end, but on the shorter end, which is net positive for liquidity because reverse repos will be used to soak that up. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, uh, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think maybe short term, there is probably a tradable bottom in, uh, in, 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 in the U.S. bonds. But long term, the picture looks uh, kind of nasty in the sense that um, you look at the federal deficit this year is $1.4 trillion. It is expected to double by 2033. The federal debt as a percentage of GDP is not expected to slow down. This essentially means more debt issued. And it is not going to slow because the government needs to pay for the military. Government needs to pay for the elderly. Government also needs to pay for the added uh, interest expense that they they're recurring from higher interest rates. Uh, so that just means to me that long-term yields are complicated. It is There is a general upward pressure up uh, for, for yields to remain higher. Um, unless, of course... There is some sort of a liquidity event that might transpire, which can happen very likely, where the Fed comes in and accommodates for some time. But I don't think that's a long-term solution anymore. Uh, and I'll be curious to see uh, that as well, specifically like given where we are, uh, where inflation is higher than normal. And given that there's a liquidity event that happens because of the ongoing tightening, um, how Fed accommodation, possible Fed accommodation in the future is taken by markets. Um, it's to be seen, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right, of course. And, you know, typically it's when the Fed starts cutting rates that, you know, we see that the uh, sell-off in markets. Are, of course, in the last few uh, months, we've seen that very tight kind of negative correlation where, of course, high yields, lower stocks, you know, that's that's been there for a while. Similar with the dollar, right? Higher dollar, obviously, setting stocks uh, further down. Now, the question is, though, moving forward, is I've heard people make the argument that, right, 
yields are going up so high that you know eventually that's the thing right the fed is going to be forced to eventually buy right which eventually is bullish for stocks that's what some analysts see they say well you know eventually when the yield gets seven eight in fact you know you can kind of calculate it mathematically right where eventually that debt burden gets you know basically the us would be bankrupt which you know obviously we know it, it would never get bankrupt right because we would just print so some people actually take that as a bullish sign, right? They say, well, eventually we're going to have to print. You know, maybe inflation's going to go out of whack, but, you know, maybe at least stocks will hold up. <laughs> um, I think, um, look, if we get a 2008 kind of a recession whereby a credit event um, completely sort of like almost puts the financial system at risk and creates so many... Uh, and, and leads to such a high degree of unemployment, would uh, such a would such a scenario where the Fed comes into with with QE and then the stocks eventually bottoming and rising up again would transpire. Uh, the biggest um, sort of uh, phenomenon today that I think uh, that we should know about is just like labor shortages is a mm -hmm. structural issue, and you can see that like even with uh, the job market weakening, um, you know. Um, Average hourly earnings are just growing 0.2% on a month-over-month -month basis at this point. On a year-over-year, -year, it's still like 4.1 or whatnot. But it is on a month-over-month, -month, it is it is it is it is slowing down. Um, and non-farm payrolls are also slowing down. But job openings to unemployment rate is still at 1.5. That means there are 1.5 jobs per unemployed person. This is a this is a level like never ever seen at the height, obviously in 2022 or 2021. It was 1.9. It has come down. But 1.5 jobs per unemployed person is a lot. And it obviously always sort of keeps the pressure on wages. It keeps the labor market tight. And as a result, I think even if we have a terrible recession, I don't necessarily think that we are going to see the kind of unemployment we saw in 2008 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, to, so therefore, people, so, so my uh, response to people who say that stocks will go up um, after a recession because, um, or stocks will go up once the Fed um, comes in, provides, accommodates, um, is that 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 scenario will only happen in sort of this way where there's a deep, deep recession, earnings down like 25, 30%, unemployment spikes up, uh, inflation essentially just vanishes from the system. And we almost sort of return to the sort of 2008 post-financial uh, post crisis mode, whereby Fed could keep on accommodating, interest rates were low, and uh, stocks and companies and the whole business cycle saw a whole revamp. Mm -hmm. um, in the current cycle, I believe that, you know, given where inflation and spending uh, are, there is no doubt that a, that a liquidity event can arise. In fact, if I look at bank reserves today, bank reserves are down from, I think, $4.18 trillion to around $3 trillion, $3.1 trillion. They have gone down because of the whole QT process. Um, and this has happened at, um, at, at an aggressive pace. Last time the Fed uh, tried to um, reduce the size of its asset size, obviously by reducing the size of its bank reserves uh, in 2019, and the and, and the reserves reached, I believe, 1.5 trillion dollars. There was a re, there was a re, repo market issue, mm -hmm. repo market right. liquidity. Um, looking at how sort of the 
um, you know, obviously um, during the pandemic, the Fed's asset size doubled, bank reserves doubled. Right now, bank uh, Fed's asset size is probably down maybe like 12% or so, and bank reserves are down 10%. In my opinion, the Fed probably has at most $1 trillion in additional left uh, in terms of assets to sell before it triggers any form of a liquidity, uh, liquidity crisis in the repo market. Uh, the question is, during that time, should inflation stay high? I don't necessarily think it's going to be good for stocks by any means. Like you're talking about a slowdown, but possibly a recession with inflation uh, rates that inflation rates that are high. We cannot have an environment in that case where like the equity risk premium sort of will almost like spike. If I'm if, if I sort of make sense, like you, you have a recession, so earnings are going down. You have inflation, so there is push up in equity risk premium as a result. So combine these two things together your equity risk premium will almost like spike, which is net negative for stocks, in my opinion. So a stagflation is uh, the worst possible outcome. And unfortunately, like that is a big possibility given the direction of the U.S. economy, unless like we see some form of a relief from productivity boost or something else. Right. Of course, stagflation is, of course, uh, what was coming to mind you said it yourself, so obviously you see that as a potential possibility. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about more about employment because I think that's a very interesting issue here because we are talking about that labor market tightness, of course. So, how does it play out? Do you think in twenty twenty four then with the with the uh, with the labor market so tight? How exactly are we going? I mean, are we going to see? Do you think that's going to loosen up and that's going to eventually bring about a recession, or how, how do you think that kind of plays out with this kind of um, you might call secularly uh, tied labor market. Sure. Um, I think labor market may weaken a little bit from here in terms of the fact that we may see instead of 1.5 jobs per unemployed person, it may come down to 1.1. That's still a lot of a drop we are talking about. And as a result, we may see average hourly earnings come down. Now, when, when our average hourly earnings come down, obviously it's going to transpire through consumer spending. Consumer spending is still at high levels. So if once consumer, uh, and, and it's still growing at 5.9% on a year-over-year basis. Um, once again, if consumer spending is growing at 5.9% on a year-over-year basis, it's very difficult for inflation to stay, to come down to 2.2%. Um, so it is possible that um, labor market may weaken. I don't think there is going to be severe unemployment. I could be wrong, but that's not my base case. And should that happen, we should see a softening in further softening in average hourly earnings. And should that trans and that absolutely will transpire to uh, the overall direction of consumer spending. Uh, now, what obviously uh, worries me is the amount of credit card debt that um, consumers have racked up over the last sort of year or so. Um, so household debt uh, is sitting at approximately seventeen trillion dollars, and household debt consists of um, your housing debt, which is just mortgages, and you have non-housing debt, which is your auto loans, student loans, and um, and credit cards. And the housing debt portion is 70% of all household debt. And that part looks fine at a high level. When I look at household debt as a percentage of uh, personal, uh, uh, as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of personal income or interest payments, it looks fine at a high level. 
what is worrisome is the pace at which non-housing debt as a percentage of personal disposable income is growing and it is growing fast it is grow it is currently at 8.5 percent um and um while income would probably need to drop maybe like 10 to 15 percent for it to sort of get to alarmingly high levels of like high level debt delinquencies and stuff mm -hmm. um yeah, it is. It, uh, I, I, I think uh, one of the ways in which a recession could transpire is through this because credit card debts are at an all-time high, interest payments on the credit card debts are at an all-time high, and should labor markets uh, weaken from here through uh, lower wages or lower increases in wages, um, it could uh, further squeeze and cause loan delinquencies. And um, to add to that, we are currently seeing like banks, for example, um, adding to loan, loan loss reserves. Uh, even uh, companies like Amex, um, um, American Express, are also adding to loan loss reserves. So it is definitely top of mind of companies where they see that consumers are spending, but should there be a weakness, there could be a uptick in um, consumer loan delinquency, which mm -hmm. is not good and is just one more sort of ingredient to a bigger recession that may transpire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of charts, of course, rolling around through the internet and uh, Twitter, you know, talking about, you know, very hard, uh, you know, credit card rates, all that kind of stuff. You also see a lot of charts kind of making different points, right? I saw one the other day which had a thing was credit card debt, but as a percentage of total deposits, right, which was a lot lower. And I think, you know, to that extent, if not preventing a recession, I've made the argument before that, you know, because of course, of all that excess liquidity build up throughout uh, COVID, of course, you know, you know, this recession, which you know, obviously we had on the docket for the last year and a half, probably been delayed due to the fact that, of course, everyone is so flush with cash. You know, consumers, corporations as well, of course, sitting on a ton of cash and now collecting a lot higher interest, which I believe is something you uh, talked about in your last in your in your last post, right? Mm -hmm. But you mentioned banks, and I wanted to touch on that real quick because, of course, we did get bank earnings about two or three weeks ago. And, you know, I made the point that, you know, you see something like someone like JP Morgan, I believe they delivered a beat, uh, so they're doing great. How can you, you know, when that's basically, I mean, that's the Bank of America, right? Well, literally, obviously, we have a Bank of America. That's a different one. But, you know, <laughs> when you talk about bank earnings, that are basically the customer is basically the U.S. the U.S. consumer, the U.S. corporations. When they're doing so well, you know how can uh, how can we be talking about a weakening economy, right? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, so bank earnings were superb. Uh, they beat expectations on uh, revenue and earnings. Um, their and 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 their business is boosted obviously by the net interest income in the sense that they are basically being able to charge higher on loans then they're paying out on deposits. So why shouldn't they be happy? On top of that, their personal banking is doing really well. But um, um, I, I think there are, there are a couple of things to look at over here. I mean, first of all, this is probably the first time where, like, obviously, JP Morgan, who has done so well, the CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, obviously came on uh, screen to say that this is one of the most difficult and um, uncertain of all times, or dangerous of all times, given all the different sort of forces at play, whether it is the geopolitical tensions or, you know, uh, debt that is possibly coming due at, at large scale for a bunch of com companies that, you know, had probably financed their debt at very low interest rates. So there are lots of lots of unknown unknowns. 
at this point. And this is probably the first time where probably a bulk of the big banks sounded the alarm on a possible recession or a possible slowdown. Um, one of the other things that they have, they're all doing is, um, is, is again, like they are, they're increasing their loan loss reserves, as I said before. And apart from uh, JP Morgan, pretty much all the big banks are also laying off their workers mm -hmm. um, as they are uh, cutting costs. Um, so it's once again, like to your point, like, you know, it, it is showcasing that down the line, we are probably going to see much softer employment, not unemployment at levels we saw possibly in the last decade because there are structural forces at play. But yeah, in general, um, I think the the mood is sort of turning more optimistic. Sorry, not uh, sorry. The mood is turning more sort of cautious as we end the Q3 earnings into Q4 uh, across big banks. Possibly across like companies, even like Meta, for example, mm -hmm. or a lot of consumer uh, uh, consumer spending specific companies, or logistics companies per se. Um, there are there they aren't necessarily like saying that oh well inflation is helping us boost our revenues and earnings anymore. It's sort of at the peaking point where um, they're not being able to increase their revenues um, as much as they had been able to during this entire cycle, um, and sort of maybe the speaking that the, the, the tipping point is coming um should it come next quarter or maybe next year or never um highly doubt that but still uh, remains to be a question yeah it's very interesting I, since you have a background in tech i'm also curious uh what your thoughts are if you could develop a bit more around the contact because of course you know a big theme in markets this year has also been that rise in the magnificent seven now there's big tech stocks and, you know, I've made the argument also that, yes, obviously, they're, they're a little bit overvalued, but at the same time, you know, and maybe this is kind of part of the new world we're getting into, right? The, the bigger bet are getting bigger and then see the small caps getting completely crushed also, uh, perhaps because of the, you know, the issues with this new kind of uh, interest rate paradigm. So uh, what what do you think about the, I mean, the, the big tech stocks? Are they, what's their outlook? And I guess, you know, my final question is, is AI going to save us all? What's going to <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if it's going to save us all. Um, at least I can't say that in the current, uh, given my sort of uh, very basic understanding of this very fast evolving space. I definitely think that um, there is going to be an explosion of growth in computing and machine learning um, models that is going to spearhead uh, the movement in this space. And we have already seen that, um, especially since over the last year. As you said, like big tech has tremendously outperformed any other sectors by far in uh, in the S and P five hundred, and has almost sort of caused this imbalance in a way. And maybe some of that growth was is 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 um, is warranted um, is warranted. But um, um, I I think obviously valuation comes to be a question, especially when rates are high. Mm -hmm. um, now. How do I frame this? Uh, in terms of yeah, so in terms of uh, big tech, so the so big tech has obviously a lot of the big tech has obviously ridden uh, the wave of AI. It's not only big tech, as in just the you know your Apple, Google, Microsoft, um, Amazon, and Facebook or Meta. It's also semiconductor. Semiconductors have just like have exponentially grown this year. I mean, obviously you can see that with uh, Nvidia or even 
um, with other chip manufacturers or chip designers per se. Um, the way that I look at AI specifically is that there are companies that enable the movement of AI and there are companies that stand to benefit from AI. And I look at the companies that stand to, that enable the movement of AI, I would say that, yeah, semiconductors. Semiconductors play a huge part. And obviously, NVIDIA's, NVIDIA, AMD, they stand at the center of it. Would I buy them at current prices? Probably not, because if I look at NVIDIA per se, it, it, sure, it's forward PE is 28, but it is pricing in 170% earnings growth. Should that fail, um, the company is going to be hammered. So, and, 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 and most importantly at this point, like similar to how I believe, I, I think the entire AI space is exciting from an innovation standpoint. I think in the public markets and possibly in the private markets to a certain degree, there's a lot of buzz in AI. Similar to how like sort of the Web3 crypto space was uh, in 2021. And maybe some of that buzz or the air has to come out of it, in my opinion. So semiconductors, I think long-term, great. Short-term, I don't see value um, in it, my opinion. The second part, I would the, the second um, sort of enabler of AI is 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 is, um, is cloud computing, and in that space, I there are three three main players. Obviously, your Google Cloud, um, Azure, and AWS, and um, we saw that Google, though it beat earnings this quarter and revenue. And it did really well on YouTube uh, ads revenue as well. Um, because it missed its GCP cloud revenue, the stock got hammered. Um, and I'm not exactly sure sort of, you know, how it plans to spearhead its growth in GCP. Currently where Google is trading, it's sort of almost trading at par with S&P 500 when it comes to its valuation, PE, forward PE and its earnings growth. Right. But should... Um, S&P 500 contract in valuation, I believe that everything else equal in Google, Google will also contract in value. Let's come to Microsoft. Microsoft has just been like, you know, going at it every single earnings, beating expectations, beating expectations. That mm -hmm. Microsoft stock and, 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 and obviously it's cloud revenue has beat expectations this quarter as well. And I think they are not projecting any kind of slowdown for next quarter as well, if I'm correct. I may be wrong on that. Um, however, like Microsoft, uh, once again, similar to NVIDIA, but not nearly as crazy as NVIDIA, has a lot of optimism priced into the stock, mm -hmm. but nearly not as much. Like NVIDIA has 170% expectation in earnings growth, whereas Microsoft probably has like around, uh, let me see, Microsoft has probably around, yeah, like 12%, sorry, yeah, 15% earnings growth expectation baked into it. Um, so there's a lot less risk with Microsoft if you look at it from this angle uh, to invest in Microsoft versus an NVIDIA. Um, on the other hand, I would say like, on the, uh, I mean, uh, in, the, in the general space of big tech, um, companies like Apple, Apple has, I think apart, I think apart from just its uh, iPhone, every single hardware product probably saw a decline in sales this quarter. Mm -hmm. um, and the services revenue obviously um, did well, but the company is currently trading at an insanely, at, 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 at a, a non-reasonable valuation given um, mm. its earnings and revenue pro growth projections. So almost like, um, like investors are piling or still believing in Apple because it has got such a massive pile of cash mm -hmm. sitting in. Um, so in general, I would say like 
um, I mean, I, I, I know I digress from AI a little bit into big tech, but the overall picture in big tech, I wouldn't say like, I, I think there are players like Apple, which I don't think that <laughs> sensibly it makes sense. If I am optimistic, I would definitely go for a company like Microsoft. I know that Meta has sounded the alarm on ad revenue going down possibly next year, but there is still a possibility for, for Meta to go up um, if it continues to drive the growth that it is currently and sort of keeping it spent. So that's difficult for its long-term vision with the whole Meta Labs situation. Um, yeah. And uh, so so that's sort of my take on like the big tech uh, and sort of the enabler in, 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 enabler space of, of AI, if I must. And on sort of the beneficiaries of AI, I know there are obviously existing B2B SaaS companies and B2C companies that are working to, you know, uh, to integrate AI into their, in, into their workloads, into their product workflows. Um, the space has been confusing because these stocks were one of the, were the pandemic winners per se, and they necessarily have not reached or created new all-time highs. So it's, it is a difficult space uh, because once again, like these companies are not cheap. There's a lot of optimism baked into it. Um, and then there are obviously like your native AI companies. A lot of them are private at this point. And um, while VC space in this, uh, in VC funding in this space is pretty, like overall is still kind of like subdued. I think there are companies that are proving their worth and are racking up their valuation pretty fast and pretty aggressively. Uh, so yeah, that's my take on like sort of the AI space from a company standpoint in terms of whether it will create long-term value, I think, yes. I mean, I think we need, I, I think it is the much necessary sort of the next wave of innovation that is uh, coming our way and, and, and it is taking place and it is going to increase productivity and it is going to change the way we work and it's going to change sort of the jobs uh, that are there today. And um, I am optimistic um, about it. I think the AI regulation space is an interesting one to watch, especially since it is such uh, I mean, such a powerful system uh, at a different level. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's sort of my take on AI and big tech earnings, mm -hmm. if that sort of answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you make a lot of good points there and talk about basically that balancing it, right? I mean, you get all this emotion and, you know, the, the market likes to be forward looking and pricing in the future. Obviously, oftentimes it's just how it works, right? The market gets ahead of itself and, you know, Prices in a little bit uh, too much optimism, perhaps, and not enough pragmatism. Exactly. said it correctly. Yeah. And in terms of the AI, I mean, this isn't something that I, I've touched on a lot, but yeah, I just, I think that, yeah, there's definitely the possibility there, right, that it's going to be from a more sort of long-term macro perspective, right, something akin to what we saw maybe throughout the, uh, you know, early 90s and then with the invention of, or, or the proliferation of the internet and to an extent that increase in productivity and to a certain extent, kind of that led to a price deflation in a in a sense, right? We are one hundred percent. I think there is a lot of consumer surplus when it comes to AI, and uh, as a result, there um, companies that are going to embrace AI um, are definitely going to be the winners. And we might actually see a lot of creative destruction over the course of the next um, five to ten years, or whatever given uh, span of time for companies that actually failed to innovate at the speed that it needed to, and that it needed to um, innovate at in order to like maximize its 
uh, cost improve or um, you know yeah improve its cost structure. So um, I think yeah, um, I, and there there are a lot of unknown unknowns in the space, but whatever is out there at a very early level is very exciting for sure. Absolutely. Now let's try and zoom into you know not twenty thirty four today, but twenty twenty four, and let's get into some kind of actionable advice. What do you think? Um, you know, in terms of positioning and trends, how do you see things playing out for 2024? Maybe in more practical terms, uh, you know, how do you think investors should be prepared slash positioned for that? Sure. Um, so there are multiple economic scenarios that can play out. The one that we are currently in is where we have growth and where inflation is still above trend. And so that this is this is the status quo, let's call it. We have the second scenario where you have productivity acceleration, whereby you would see that you have um, economic growth, not to, not um, terrific levels, but economic growth. You will also see inflation coming down. And this probably is like sort of your post-2008 um, era, similar uh, kind of a scenario. This scenario is very good. The, 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 productivity, the productivity acceleration scenario is very good for... Um, Equities, it's very good for growth. It's not good for your for things like you know gold or mm -hmm. um, bonds per se. But will that play out? I'll come back to that. The third possible scenario is that we have higher for longer. We again see some form of um, an inflation outburst, but it's mostly going to be commodity based if it happens. And once again, the Fed is required to raise rates from current levels that is not priced by the markets, and we again see sort of this bear steepening that we saw, not good for equities at all. Um, probably good for equities or companies that have a lot of cash, such as Microsoft or Apple's, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, those these kind of scenarios are testing out, uh, tr uh, turning out to be very good for things like cash, for things like um, gold and Bitcoin. Will the, uh, so, so that's a third scenario, higher for longer. The fourth scenario is where we have a deep recession, similar to 2008. Economic growth is negative. Inflation also falls. In the immediate term, it's bad for pretty much everything. Obviously, you have your recession-proof stocks. You have gold. You have bonds. Possibly Bitcoin, which may outperform, but that remains to be seen. And the final scenario is stagflation, which is the most undesired, but actually a pretty possible outcome. And in during stagflation, we will see economic growth is negative, but inflation is still higher than normal. This is very bad for equities. This is good for cash, good for bonds, very good for gold and Bitcoin. Now, out of the five scenarios, status quo, productivity acceleration, higher for longer, deep recession, stagflation, where do I think um, we are most likely going to land? I think uh, we are most likely going to land. We are probably going to just cruise around in sort of the status quo area where we have not much of a growth and inflation like still sort of remains above trend a bit mm -hmm. to possibly stagflation where we ultimately the economy goes into a recession, but inflation still remains high. Mm -hmm. And in both the scenarios, unfortunately, um, I think that, um, I mean, I, I wish I could say like, yeah, let's go all, all in on growth. That's not the case, um, unfortunately. I think in, in, in this scenario, I would say that well, cash is currently yielding close to 5% in money market funds. That's a great option. Number two, I would say gold. Gold historically is an inflation hedge. It is scarce. It is essentially money. 
um, whereby we are seeing increasingly over time that the fiat world, the reserve world of dollar is coming under question. I don't think that the dollar world is going to end anytime soon uh, because the network effects are that big. And the third piece is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, as you have seen this year, has gone up 104%. It has outperformed everything. Probably not NVIDIA and stuff like that, but it, it, it has outperformed S&P 500, cash, bonds, commodities. And uh, yeah, as the, as the and, and I feel like as the economy sort of becomes like, you know, I, I think there are, there, these are the sort of the core things that are driving the narratives at this point. The economy is swinging from soft landing to hard landing scenario constantly. So investors are getting jittery about how to protect their wealth and how to hedge against inflation. Investors and people in general are also probably coming to terms with the fact that inflation is probably going to remain high for the foreseeable future. May not hyperinflation, may not be a very high rate of inflation, but inflation is not going to go back down to where it was in the 2008 post-financial era period. And the third thing is that um, I think especially post-GFC, there are cracks that are forming in the fiat, in, in, in the fiat system at the end of the day. And it's bringing the long-term tenacity um, of dollar under question, especially in a system where dollar is the most liquid um, asset. Um, it is obviously used for all or most of the global transactions. It is relatively scarce, yet now dollar is um, dollar is at, at a risk of getting devalued as government de debt uh, deficit um, sort of spirals up from here. And that is the truth. So I think these three things, gold, Bitcoin, and uh, cash, are the three main things that I like mm -hmm. in terms of my defensives. Um, in terms of like sort of other allocation, I think there are other trends in place. Obviously, we talked about AI, and I don't necessarily think that there are immediate opportunities that I personally, given my risk appetite, would invest heavily in. But there are other trends that I think are, in, are interesting, like, for example, reshoring. Um, Companies uh, moving um, their operations close to their home country because of geopolitical risks. Uh, unless there is a productivity boost, this is also pretty bad for like the long-term picture of inflation. But during but but in this space, there are industries such as defense, industrials, manufacturing. I am particularly fond of defense at this point, given sort of the direction of the whole narrative around just uncertainty in general. Um, I'm, I, I think Lockheed Martin, uh, Raytheon, they are all trading at very uh, reasonable valuations given their future um, earnings and revenue projections. Um, so that's the second thing. The third um, trend that I can see is the aging population. Um, and um, in that space, I think there is sort of this trend, around, not trend, but there is sort of this gravitation towards maybe healthcare or what I am particularly fond of is actually um, nursing, like um, like elderly home um, companies. One of them is Omega Healthcare, and um, I'm an investor in Omega Healthcare. And that company has basically just has has stood the test of time in in the sense that the population is aging. These and 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 if the REIT, it's it's actually a real estate um, right, yeah, company, and. Um, and yeah, it's, it's well-financed and it basically stands to benefit from this ongoing trend of aging population. Um, and we have already covered sort of um, the future of finance through Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So I think that's sort of where my head is, which is um, gold, Bitcoin, cash, 
uh, find value if there are opportunities in AI, um, take advantage of the aging population in the form of healthcare, um, elderly home facilities and other areas that might pop up there, and uh, investing in defense. So mm -hmm. that's sort of where my core investment thesis is at this point, given the macro outlook that I have the highest conviction in. It's very interesting. I really like the way that you break it up into, you know, different different possibilities and, you know, a lot of the topics you mentioned, of course, I'm very familiar and also fond of, you know, you don't need to convince me that uh, gold is money and, you know, that obviously uh, Bitcoin is also a great source of um, a potential there. Um, you know, also you mentioned healthcare and defense, both uh, issues that I've covered before uh, in my Substack. I talk about some stocks in those in those areas. So very interesting. Uh, I want to talk a little, a little bit more about Bitcoin. Maybe also touch on real estate. Uh, first of all, though, I wanted to maybe, you know, when you talk about those five scenarios, and and you mentioned, for example, the idea of getting a deeper recession or perhaps entering a more inflationary uh, scenario. You said, for example, commodity-led inflation, right? So what exactly you think could be speculating the potential triggers or yeah, what kind of indicators would you be looking at to tell you, okay, we've, we've switched scenarios, we, we've entered maybe a more inflationary scenario or on the other hand, a more recessionary scenario. So maybe something with employment perhaps, no, I guess. Uh, that's, um, that's a difficult one, actually. Um, um, I think, uh, let me think about it. Um, Take your time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think like the thing is that when, when you're, you know, like, like, like where we are now with the, with the status quo scenario where you have economic expansion and um, inflation that is still above trend, we are slowly sort of seeing, um, you know, growth projections come down. These are all leading indicators, but at the end of the day, when something breaks, it happens really fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just very difficult at that point to uh, like, I mean, we, we see with any break, breaks to be, to be very honest. So it's unless you're an insider with insider information, things break very fast. Um, so I think I would not necessarily like know ahead of time or I'd be able to sort of like like, should something break? I mean, at the end of the day, we're only going to get a deep recession or a stagflation should something break, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and and by break, I mean there's, there's going to be some form of some some form of a liquidity event, liquidity crisis, a credit crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's in repo market, whether it is commercial real estate blowing up, whatever it is. But how it transpires, um, I think would. Um, require like it, it is not as simple as it was before especially given in in the sense that it is not as simple as it was in 2008 or before because government debts are so high and there are structural forces in place and as a result we sort of have to al almost monitor the fed's action and how they're framing their accommodation and how the markets are reacting to it and mm -hmm. maybe a few more months of data that transpires to sort of re like to, to properly ground the thesis. I, I think it's quite difficult to say that if there's a credit crisis at this moment, it very well could be a deep recession. I don't know. Um, probabilities are all, but it, it very well could be. I mean, um, when, as I said, when something breaks, it happens very fast. So I think it's 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 a matter of sort of um, taking a step back, not trying to like rush and participate in whatever what upturns or downturns, short or long, just wait 
to see how the Fed frames it, um, see how the market reacts and wait for the next uh, level of data to confirm your thesis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great answer. Obviously, that was you know, almost an, an impossible question. I mean, <laughs> macroeconomics, you know, there, there's some forecasting there, but I think, you know, obviously, kind of like Ray Dalio talks about in his book, right? Preparing, you know, a good, having a good balanced portfolio is about basically being open to all the possibilities because, you know, at the end of the day, it's possible to, to predict the future. Now, I did want to get a little bit more into Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, it's something that I hold uh, quite near and dear. I've talked a lot about Bitcoin in the past. So first of all, uh, you know, what are your thoughts of Bitcoin in general? Obviously, I always like to ask, you know, are you the kind of person who kind of sees Bitcoin as digital gold? And also, secondly, I want to talk a little bit about the adult of Bitcoin as well, because there's also kind of, from a macro perspective, there's kind of two scenarios, two kind of sides, right? Some people, and you know, Bitcoin has... in in the past, trade more like a risk asset. So the idea that Bitcoin would perform well in like more of a deflationary scenario with high, uh, with high growth, or do you also see it as possibly, you mentioned before, more of a hedge against inflation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so Bitcoin is obviously up. It has outperformed S&P 500. It, is, it has outperformed cash, bonds, gold, commodities. Um, to your point, like earlier, um, probably in 2020 or 2021, when Bitcoin was rising fast and it probably touched $63,000 or more. Um, there was the idea that yeah, Bitcoin is like going to move in line with the 10-year bond. Mm-hmm. In other words, like um, not in line or inversely proportional. Like as if, if interest rates are low, then Bitcoin rises. If interest, if interest rates rise, then Bitcoin falls and vice versa. Um, that's... I, th- I think that correlation is changing. In fact, um, I, th- I, I, I think I wrote about it in a, in a latest post, which is not my research. It's research from Fidelity um, that the correlation of Bitcoin with NASDAQ is falling considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it is becoming more valuable as a potential portfolio diversifier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's um, sort of where Bitcoin is from a portfolio standpoint, but ultimately what it is. It is... It is money. It is. It is like just like you have dollar, you have gold, you have you have you have Bitcoin. Um, we essentially moved away from gold to fiat currency dollar, because dollar was extremely. Um, it, it it was not fast to authenticate. It was not fast to settle. It was not fast to transact. Fiat currencies, on the other hand, are fast to settle, fast to transact, far fast to authenticate. But on the other hand. Well, with the dollar, it is somewhat considered to be scarce compared to other currencies, such as, let's say, Turkish lira, for example. But um, at the end of the day, fiat currencies, governments can print as much money as they want and devalue the currency and completely deplete uh, a family's uh, savings and their wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I look at um, Bitcoin or gold, um, it's sort of... Well, Bitcoin is essentially fast, digital, um, and scarce. That is the thing. Like, um, apart from in compared to gold, gold is obviously a physical thing. It is not divisible. It is not transparent. It has served the purpose of money. It has served the purpose of inflation hedging for a long period of time. But ultimately, the reason why I, um, why why Bitcoin stands a chance, and I'm not saying that we are necessarily moving to a world where fiat currency is going to collapse it's going to die 
I, as I said before, that dollar has tremendous network effects and um, it's very hard to reverse or outcompete dollar. But um, yeah, there are um, cracks in the system. There are early signs in the system that U.S. is very much in a late stage debt cycle, as Ray Dalio likes to talk about it. Right. Uh, where the government is just where the government debt is not going to go down ever in this regime. And this basically means that your dollar is going to get devalued. You see, you know, in countries, and there are probably like 160 or 180 fiat currency, and each government is also sort of in the whole government debt spiral movement. And you've seen over and over again that when um, countries, their, their governments default on debts, and like in Greece or in Lebanon or in Argentina, uh, we have seen that um, the system sort of get, gets forcibly dollarized in the sense that people like immediately rush to put their money in dollar because they believe in dollar. Right. Um, but that is changing um, and changing quite fast, in my opinion, um, in the sense that the the maker of the dollar, the U.S. government, is no longer disciplined and cannot afford to be disciplined given the sort of vicious cycle it has put itself in. Mm-hmm. So hence we have Bitcoin, which is scarce, which is a uni- unit of value, a source um, medium of exchange. It has, it has all the aspects of money and most importantly it's a, it's 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 a distributed ledger it keeps all the transactions transparent which is not possible with gold and i think with the institutional adoption that we are seeing with more and more merchants accepting it as a form of payment there is a real case for bitcoin the only thing is that it, it is a 15 year old technology and um, i uh, it, it still has to stand the test of time um, yeah, sure, it, it has not been hacked, and sure, there is no way to centralize it, but wait until maybe someone can. And um, and most, so so yeah, I, in my opinion, this is still to like stand quite a bit, a test of time over the next many years. Just to go through a series of volatility to see how it actually sort of stands. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that's sort of where my head is with Bitcoin. I am... Um, and I'm definitely bullish on Bitcoin long term. Um, I'm also aware that there are other competing currencies, possibly. I am not very familiar in the whole crypto space in terms of all the competing cryptocurrencies and stuff like that. But it is also a very exciting space. Um, I would say similar to how AI is developing and similar. To, so so there are lots of like exciting technologies in this space. And um, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on Bitcoin, especially at current levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely definitely agree with you on that. And of course, you talk about the dollar having network effects. And I think at this point, we can also talk about uh, Bitcoin to an, ex- to an extent having a, a network effects at this point. I think, you know, it's obviously, like you say, it's got to stand the test of time. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I, uh, supposedly, quantum computing might, uh, you know, might be able to crack Bitcoin. So, so I hear, oh. again, you're the expert, not me. <laughs> yeah, we, we shall see. Yeah. Um... Um, yeah, I'm I'm not that big of a tech nerd to actually understand uh, that yet until it happens, but I'm hopeful of the technology for now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now we have a couple minutes left. Yeah, I don't want to push you too, out of, too much out of your comfort zone, but I did want to talk maybe about real estate a little bit since you did mention uh, owning that uh, rate. Because um, uh, real estate also, you know, something that a lot of people have been talking a lot about, of course, with uh, commercial real estate, you know, it seems like everyone's always waiting for kind of 2008 to happen again. Mm. What, are, what what are your thoughts on real estate going into uh, going to 2024? 
Sure. I think com commercial real estate is a is a problem for sure. Um, it's sort of a ticking bomb. Um, I don't uh, know to what degree of like, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, these a lot, a lot of these commercial real estate properties are not essentially making enough income to cover their interest expenses. And a lot of their uh, debt is probably also coming due. I don't think that the commercial real estate market is as big as the residential housing market. I may be wrong. And I don't think that um, if there is a if there is an event, it's going to be as catastrophic. And most importantly, and here's probably my naive take on this. I think we have been talking about commercial real estate bursting up for like probably two years, a year and a half now. So um, I'm just curious as to like, I mean, if it's such a ticking bomb, like um, have precautions already been taken um, by the people who own the debt? So I am not exactly, I, I, I in, in my sort of, um, high level thinking i don't think that this is a space that is going to burst up if it if it does burst up going to have the similar effect of 2008 financial crisis with the housing market and most importantly there have been regulations in place right now with sort of how exposure to um debt in the financial markets happens so that's my take at a high level i can be very wrong um not my very core area of expertise mm -hmm. No, it's definitely a very interesting, uh, very interesting area. I think it's an area that's, uh, you know, perhaps full of opportunity as we have seen a lot of uh, valuations come down. All of those rates uh, now look decently attractive, in my opinion. So at the very least, you know, the purpose of portfolio diversification, I think there's, you know, there's definitely a, an argument to be made there. Sure. Of course, depends how things pan out. In any case, um, one last question, because uh, I'm also, you know, obviously, since the U.S. has so many problems, I've also been quite interested in international equities. I don't know if you're interested in international equities, and to that extent, I don't know if you could speak a little bit towards um, Indian equities, which you know, obviously, a lot of people nowadays, or oh, well, it's not not a new topic for for, for quite some time. Uh, people have been very interested in uh, India, for example, as a as a kind of growth area. Uh, any any thoughts on on equities internationally and in India? Any do you think there's any value there? Uh, I think there is tremendous value there, and um, I think it sort of took its uh, sweet time to uh, build its thesis over the course of many years. Um, and um, obviously, under the new um, government, it's not a new government; it's it's up for re the, the government is up for re-election next year. Um, but the but under the present uh, government, the, the the nation has built a lot of really sort of sustainable rails in place when it comes to finance. When it comes to technology infrastructure, um, in and 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 boosting the overall services economy, um, and the main sort of um, spike in the Indian uh, equities, I think, uh, surfaced after the pandemic. Um, that that is one. Now, obviously, there have been headlines about how you know certain companies have overlevered, and there have been um, candidates for short selling, like Adani, for example. But I think overall. Um, the Indian equity markets have gone up, have gone up pretty tremendously. I see long-term opportunity in India should sort of the tailwinds that are driving India at this point continue. Like a lot of countries at this point are moving their manufacturing base for, away from China to India, as an example, uh, because there is less geopolitical risk compared to China, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think the election next year is also going to be pretty uncertain for the stock market um, as well. Um, I am not an active investor in the Indian stock market. It is an area, to be very honest, that I have to myself study a little bit more in order to gain more conviction in terms of the companies. Um, but I, I do see that there, in terms of emerging economies, uh, that is a country which has got um, a robust financial market. It has got um, a, a young population in place. It has got it's it, the, the 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 young population wants to spend. They're making good money. Uh, employment is strong. Uh, new businesses are coming up. Venture capital spending is strong. So there are lots of like very similar forces, like how we saw probably in the, in the United States, um, in probably the 1970s or even like you know. Um, 1980s era. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there are lots of tailwinds. Um, I don't necessarily would know how to comment on the valuation space. Uh, I would probably need to study it up a little bit more and we can talk about it um, at more detail um, probably the next time. Absolutely. And there's also a lot of gold in India. So, you know, if, if shit does hit the fan, you know, always, always exactly. good. Exactly. 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 Yeah. That and that's a very good point. Yeah, the central bank has been buying up a lot of gold just in case they have to stabilize their currency. Um, yeah. So there, there are a lot of lot of smart people, obviously, and um, people who are committed to building in India at this point instead of people who want to leave India, which had been the case until probably ten years ago. So newer generation, younger generation wants to live in India. They want to build in India. They want to work in India. They want to spend in India. Um, and um, so, so yeah, and 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 investments are are, are growing. Uh, from an individual, like as as I said, like sector or company standpoint, um, I would not know very much to talk about in specific detail. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the show and talk to us. Uh, where can we find? Uh, sorry, where can we send people on the internet to find you? Uh, you can send them to my newsletter, The Pragmatic Optimist. Awesome. By the way, I'm actually reading Pragmatic Capitalism right now. I'm not sure if you've, you're familiar with that one. I am not. What is that? It's a it's a book. Um, okay. I forget who the author is now. It's just a very kind of pretty basic kind of macro macro book. But you know, I, th I thought I thought I'd better read it. You know, given given the name, right? It's it's quite interesting. Just kind of kind of basic, but pretty pretty good. Okay, uh, I'll definitely check it out to see what it is about. Um, I'm all for pragmatic everything. Um, things need to be built with uh, practicality and long-term view. So, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for coming, and you know, uh, hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Looking forward to it.